Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. The show that is so bad, if it was a meat byproduct, even McDonald's wouldn't use it. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Yes, it is the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. I am your host, Brian Levine, coming to you from a now smoking and smoke-filled recording studio built here at my office in Concord, North Carolina. It's the final, final Thursday night broadcast ever, and uh, hey, I'm actually here right now. A little change in travel plans, so we're leaving tomorrow. Uh, but anyway, on tonight's show, going to talk about the uh, Kansas City Pipe Show and tell a story. Kansas City Pipe Show, and I'll tell a little story. Work that all into pipe parts. My guest is Jim Amish. This is all pre-recorded because I thought I was going to be gone and schedule's getting tight. So this is part one of Jim's visit with me or the time we spent on the phone it's a lot of fun i'm gonna enjoy listening to it again uh instead of music inspired by jim got a little piece of uh, old radio for you at the end of the show mailbag and then i've got a rave yeah and it's all kind of tied into kansas city in the uh, pipe show but anyway here's what happened so we uh, we decided, we looked at our schedule and everything, and we decided that, you know what, instead of rushing out of here today on Thursday, leaving at 5, 5.30, driving as long as we could, we did the math and everything, and it worked out with frequent flyer miles and everything that, you know what, we're just going to fly down to Miami for our vacation, uh, which reminds me, please, please keep sending me uh, pictures of you on vacation with your pipes. Take your pipes wherever you are. John Seiler was out on the Outer Banks and uh, posted pictures on Facebook of him sitting out there smoking his pipe on the beach. So keep sending us pictures. I'll try to post a few pictures of myself while I'm on vacation there, kind of uh, cruising around and get get my pipes all ready. And speaking of which, right after this show, I've got the daunting task of figuring out which which seven pipes are going to go with me for the entire trip. Although it's been made easier now that I'm not driving. I don't have to take any real uh, driving pipes. So anyway, all right, everybody, sit back, relax, fire up a bowl with me. Thank you to the fine folks at Sutliff Tobacco Company. Here we go. The Carolinas and the tobacco tradition have been woven together generation after generation. From the Blue Ridge Mountains to the coastal low country, it's an integral part of our culture and heritage, building our beautiful tapestry. Cornell and Deal is proud to blend our pipe tobaccos in the Carolinas. Our history with tobacco dates back to the mid-1800s, and in that time we've perfected a variety of blends. The Carolinas have given us the perfect backdrop to do just that. Whether you're a fan of the rich Virginias, bold Latakias, spicy periques, or unique aromatics. We've got a tobacco that's just right for your discerning taste buds. At Cornell and Deal, we live all things pipe tobacco, blending it, smoking it, and enjoying the company of those who share our excitement. Tobacco, it's what we do. Stop by CornellandDeal.com. Heck, I wish I had a genie who could make it easy to order pipes and tobaccos online. You don't need a genie, sir. Visit fournoggins.com. They stock all your favorite pipes and tobaccos, and every order gets fast personal attention. Orders are packed carefully and shipped quickly by priority mail. Fournoggins.com. Fournoggins.com. I can still see you, you know. A bit rusty, sir. Fournoggins.com. We are back on the last Thursday Night Live Pipes Magazine radio show, and let's go through what happened at KC. So, Thursday flew there, got there a little later than we were supposed to, because, you know, airlines. Um, made it out to Cigar and Tobacco in Overland, Kansas, you know, 
Overland Park, Kansas, where the Pipe Club had their usual Thursday night meeting, and it was packed with a lot of extra folks that were in town for the show. Pipe Club always puts on a good time. It's great to gather up and and, uh, goof off for a Thursday night. Headed back to the hotel, Uh, Zach and Greta took a ride with me back to the hotel, got back, got checked in, got unpacked, went downstairs to the uh, to the sports bar there and had a sandwich and a drink with Zach and Greta. What a great way to end off my arrival into Kansas City. On uh, Friday, I had some work to do and some retail to visit while I was in town, but I made a, a specific special stop, and the special stop was kind of south of downtown Kansas City in an older part of the neighborhood where on uh, 31st Street was the original Laugh-A-Gram Studios, and that was the first the first official studio that Walt Disney worked out of, and his company was called Laugh-A-Grams. Always wanted to go visit the building. They're trying to refurbish it, and I'll tell more about the uh, about my time there in just a minute. I posted some pictures on Facebook, so you can check those out. Uh, Friday afternoon, headed back to the Argosy Casino and Hotel for the Friday night buffet, and then the sitting around the smoking tent and hanging out in uh, camaraderie and uh, goofing off and smoking. Uh, the buffet dinner was great. The Argosy, nice place. Have more on that later on, later on in the show. But it was a little warm outside. Weather out there today is hot and shitty. With continued hot and shitty in the afternoon, tomorrow a chance. But that didn't stop us from enjoying the Friday down. night camaraderie. Uh, Jordan, Mister Jerky, brought the what we figured out was probably a fourteen-year-old tin of a scudo. We cracked that open. Uh, Pylorns, James was there, and uh, Mike Sandoval, a couple other forum members were hanging out, and Steve Fallon came by and uh, decided to sit down with us. So the camaraderie was wonderful, although the weather was a little warm. Uh, Saturday, pipe show opened up right on time. Traffic seemed steady most of the day. Wish there was a wish there was a little more of a rush for me on the Brigham business side, but you know what? It was still a great bunch of people were there. Uh, Saturday night was the uh, dinner, and it was held upstairs on kind of a little loft area. And the guest speaker was Steve Fallon, and I've seen Steve do this presentation before. It's where he does a non-presentation presentation of people in the pipe world and gets you all up there. So anyway, he got myself and Kevin up there, and I told the story of this little brick that I brought with me. And the little brick is kind of similar to how I feel about pipes. Pipes are little pieces of tangible friends that uh, go on the road with us. And this little brick was just a little brick that I found that had uh, been knocked off the building of the Laugh-A-Gram Studios, the brick building in Kansas City. And you know, to me, that little brick is uh, kind of a little connection back to Walt Disney and like pipes are, to me, they're little connections back to, uh, you know, memories of friends or memories of times. And anyway, they're, they're little pieces of, little pieces of things that we carry with us. But told that story, that little brick, and then uh, Steve continued on with his uh, presentation that's always fun. If you get a chance to see Steve do one, you don't want to miss it. Uh, let's see, what else am I forgetting? Then uh, Saturday night was uh, more drinking and smoking outside and uh, and occasionally popping inside for some air conditioning. And then Sunday of the pipe show, yeah, they had the pipe carvers contest and we all got winners there. A uh, little quick report on what I picked up at the show. Ryan Alden, I uh, bought one of his pipes, fell in love with it before he won one of, got one of his pipes into the carving set. And uh, they had... The Kansas City Pipe Club had also done a Grant Batson pipe as their pipe of the year. So there's my shopping report. Uh, Sunday, didn't get down to the slow smoking contest, but did get to hang out with people. And one of the nice things about the Argosy Casino is that, you know what? You can go downstairs and go into the bar and they let us smoke our pipes right there in the bar or... Right after we closed everything up and packed up the pipe show, I had about an hour to kill, so I sat down with a cup of coffee and a little uh, little uh, sidewalk chairs that were indoors, 
got Lee Von Eric and he came over and we sat and enjoyed a pipe and some coffee together for about an hour of civility inside the air conditioning. So make sure and plan next year if you're anywhere in the uh, Kansas, Missouri area to get out to the Kansas City Pipe Show. Hope I didn't forget anything. If not, I'll try to post some stuff on Facebook. But in just a minute, my visit with Jim Amish. This is Internet Radio. The year was 1849. Zachary Taylor was sworn in as the 12th president of the United States. The U.S. flag remained fixed at 30 stars. Edgar Allan Poe was found dead in Baltimore. Congressman Abraham Lincoln patented a buoying device, the only patent ever filed by a future president. William Bond was the first person to photograph the moon through a telescope. And gold was discovered in far-off California. And in that same year, also in California, Henry Sutliff founded his small tobacco company in San Francisco. Founded on the principles of giving the public superior tobacco products for those with very discriminating tastes. Now, 165 years later, that tradition continues. Sutliff Tobacco Company has been setting the standard for pipe tobacco ever since. Take a quiz on our website to have the perfect blend suggestion for your tastes. Or just browse around to explore all of the wide variety of fine products America's oldest pipe tobacco company has to offer. Lots of things have changed since 1849, but Sutliff Tobacco Company's commitment to making the finest pipe tobacco on earth has not. Visit sutliff-tobacco.com for information on where you can find all of your favorite blends, from the sweetest aromatics to the richest English mixtures. There's nothing quite like a good book, or my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. See for yourself at corncobpipe.com. Please welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show, Jim Amish. And Jim was nice enough to sit down with me earlier and record these because of my travel schedule and everything going on that's coming up. So, Jim, thank you for doing that. Go ahead and tell everybody what you do for a career that actually pays money. <laughs> um, relative term there. Uh, well, most of the people who know me is Jim Eakes, and I chose that name because I'm a comic book artist, but I do primarily inking these days, although you know, I've done my share of penciling, too, and I've had a cartooning career before I did comic books. In fact, I have a bachelor's and a master's degree in fine art, and I was doing that before comic books. Um but uh, basically, I've worked for all the major companies. I've worked for Marvel. I've worked for DC. I've worked for Disney for six years. I worked for, I worked for Warner Brothers for six years, and I did all the Looney Tunes characters. Um, and I've worked for darn near every company. I, of course, I've done Star Trek, I, Next Generation. I've done Star Wars. I've done most of the Marvel superheroes. I've done a lot of licensing stuff for DC, including Batman animation work, style guides. Um, I've done the Amazing Spider-Man newspaper strip on several occasions. These days, for the last 18, 19 years almost, almost 19 years, I've been working for Archie Comics, you know, as well as the other companies in between. And I do the Archie and Betty and Veronica and the gang, and I do a character called Sonic the Hedgehog, which is a very popular video game that yeah. was made into a comic book. And I came along on that comic book back in 1996, and I... I'm still on it, and I probably have the longest tenure of any artist on a, on, a, on a character now, of anybody who's currently working. And I'm doing, the book I'm doing is Sonic Universe, but there's also the Sonic the Hedgehog book, which I had done previously, which is still going on, by the way. But um, I, and, and I do other assignments in between. I've done cartooning for various magazines and, and newspapers. I used to do a radio talk show in the middle of all of this as well. Played semi-pro baseball till I was 40. And um, and I smoked a pipe the whole time, too. So <laughs> let's, I was playing. Let's go back to the beginning. Where did you grow up, and then what, what started you down the road of being interested in cartooning? Well, I was born in Altoona, Pennsylvania. And, uh, and uh, when I was a little kid, I used to watch George Reeves' as Superman flying through the air on a little black and white, you know, television. And uh, flying through the air with that great cape, crashing through walls, 
bullets are bouncing off of him. He getting hugs from Lois Lane, and I thought to myself, you know, uh, that's a pretty good job there. And <laughs> I thought, well, you know, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to fly, but the least I can do is you know, make movement with lines on paper. And so I started drawing when I was five years old. And I knew when I was five years old that I was going to be a cartoonist and a writer because I had to have some a reason to draw. So I'd start writing my own stories. And I really got hooked when Adam West became Batman on television. My next-door neighbor, Billy Fink, gave me my first comic books, and, which was Spider-Man and the Fantastic Four and Superman and Batman, and I was forever hooked. Uh, and we moved to North Carolina when I was still a kid, and it just went on from there. And I just, like I said, I always knew what I was going to do, and uh, luckily I've, I worked to do it. When did you start smoking a pipe? <laughs> it's funny because this is, well, we're recording, this is June 10th now, but I started smoking a pipe June 20th of 1974. My friend in, in Boy Scouts was a guy named Steve Parsons who, uh, you know, I hope he's listening to this, uh, who smoked a pipe, and we did everything together. We went camping together, you know, we go hiking, things like that, uh, and he was trying to get me to smoke a pipe because he figured because he loved it I loved it because we did the same things and he nagged me and nagged me for a couple of weeks because I had my father's pipe which I my father had tried a pipe but he didn't stick with it and I used to use it as a paperweight on my desk so I was 13 years old at the time and Steve finally says look just try it one time and if you don't like it I won't bug you ever again I said anything to shut you up Steve <laughs> so I got the pipe he had some Borkum Riff whiskey. I tried it, and I fell in love with smoking immediately. And after high school, that dirty, rotten bum quit smoking, and he stuck me with the habit. <laughs> <laughs> but the first pipe I ever smoked, which was my father's pipe, was a late 50s Willard, um, small billiard but with, a, with, with, a, with a long stem. But I realized I needed another pipe, so... You know, I worked to get the uh, $2.95. I was collecting pop bottles and mowed a yard and went. And on the June 25th of 1974, I bought my first pipe, which, which was a full-bend Dr. Grabo Omega Smooth. Wow. And it obviously meant so much to me that I remember all the details. I can't explain to you why, but I remember those details. I just do. Now, so did, it was significant. Did you stay in the uh, in the traditional kind of aromatics for a while? Did you start jumping around trying different tobaccos? I started jumping around after, I would say, after a few weeks. For one thing, I decided I wanted to try cigars. And, you know, I started smoking cigars, too. Of course, we didn't tell Mom and Dad, but they figured it out. My parents were accepting of that. I guess they figured as long as I wasn't smoking anything illegal, it was okay to smoke a pipe. So when I, by the time I was 16, I was able to smoke in the house. But uh, I did ask permission. But, uh, yes, I, I, I started smoking, um, experimenting around. You know, the Bork and Riff stuff basically smoked too hot most of the time. You, know, you get tongue bite from that. And I was probably puffing a little fast. But, you know, you learn your cadence through experience. And so I tried other aromatics. I, I tried um, Scandinavic, they had a, uh, aromatic, a non-aromatic, and I liked the non-aromatic better. And I smoked M4 Brown for a long time. I liked that. Uh, the M4 Red was good, but it was a little too, a little too fruity for me. And I, I realized early on that aromatics would really just be a change of pace for me. I don't mean to knock them, because I do enjoy aromatics, and I smoke at least one or two a day. I smoke, what, 8 to 12 pipefuls a day? I, I don't count. I really don't know, I'm guessing. Right. And so, but yeah, very quickly. And then, and then when, when, when I started going to the local tinderbox the, uh, when I was in college, you know, before college, in school, when I was in high school and all, I just went to drugstores. That's all we had. But when I went to college, I... There was a man named Herb Galbraith who owned and ran the tinderbox, and he was the one who educated me on, on tobaccos. I learned a lot from that man, God rest his soul. He was a very good person. He was the one that got me hooked on Balkan Sobrani. He was the man who got me hooked on Three Nuns, and I had to tell you, I could, I could buy a small town with the money that I spent on Three Nuns. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> he, he had me hooked, and I, and I tried you know, other English buns and stuff, but he, he did a lot for my education.
Can you just briefly, can you describe the difference between the old three nuns and the current three nuns? Oh, certainly. Um, the old three nuns, of course, you know, was a Virginia Perique blend. And um, the uh, tobaccos, of course, were from different parts of, you know, of the world. You know, the Maui is in there. Um, I don't know where they got their perique from, but I also suspect that they also had a little topping. Well, they did have a topping. I'm not sure what the topping was. And I also think there was a slight spice in that topping. But it was sweet and sour with a little, with a Virginia taste, and the plum, and the perique was plum and pepper. And it was just entrancing. And I mean, I could smoke it all day, and I often did. I loved that tobacco. Um, and the only tobaccos that ever came close to it, in my mind, as, during those years, was Dunhill Navy Rolls, Dunhill Elizabethan Mixture, and Balkan Sobrani. For a long time, those were, I was smoking those and really nothing else. But the, but you know, in 2000, in the late 90s, let me let me say this right, in the late 90s, because of tobacco lawsuits, this is what I'm told. Three nuns, they quit importing it to America. And the same for the Dunhill Navy Rolls, although that may have been due to sales. And Balkan Sobrani quit being imported to America. And I had to go to Switzerland to get these tobaccos. Um, and my, my, my lady's uh, roommate from boarding school was living in Switzerland, and she used to get those blends and mail them to me. And so I was able to have a nice stash for many years. But, in, but one day I decided to order... Um, in 2004, Orlick took over production of, of the Three Nuns. Yeah. And I got a batch. There was not only no Perique in it, there was no Kentucky. It was straight Virginia. And I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. And it was still tasted pretty good, but it was lame now. You know, it didn't have the oomph because there was no Perique. And I was a little unhappy about that because I wasn't told that when I ordered it. Then I decided about six or eight months later to try again. And this time, I, I, I had, there was Kentucky substituted for the Paris. And the Kentucky was, was a mild Kentucky. It was not a dark fired. It tasted very good. By the way, it aged extremely well. Uh, but that was all that was available to anybody unless you had a stash of the old vapor, which I did. But as you know, McBaron uh, got the license to make it uh, last year, and they are use, and they didn't realize that the, they never had Perique. They had the recipe for the Kentucky. So you have dark fire Kentucky in it. Now, the coins are bigger now than, than they were back in um, the older days when I smoked it. You don't have, you have a little bit of the sour taste, but it's more sweet. They're, they're using their own Virginias, and they're not using the Virginias that were used earlier. So it's a totally different blend. And it's a very good blend, and I like it. And I imagine it will age very well. However, it's not magical from what I smoked for all those years and fell in love with. And those are the, the, the main difference. You don't have the interplay of sweet and sour now like you, like you did before. Um, and... Um, it's, but like I say, it's worth buying. I've got 10 tins on aging in the cellar, so I'm not going to knock the new version. It's just not the old version. So let's go back to college. You're, you're in college, and you're specifically going to school for art? For art. I have, a, I have a bachelor's and a master's degree in fine art. Were you, were you smoking in class and able to smoke? Oh, uh, yes. In those days... You could smoke. You could smoke on campus, which most campuses won't allow you to do that now. I smoked in the dorm. I I, I smoked in the library. I, I smoked, you know, sometimes in class. And I might, you know, if I was walking to class and I'm smoking my pipe and I still had a little bit, of it, I'd finish it in the class. Nobody ever complained. Nobody ever said a word, except for one time. I'm in the library and I'm studying. I'm researching a paper for my history class. This guy comes up to me and asks me to put out my pipe. And I looked up at him, and he's smoking a cigarette. <laughs> I just thought that was kind of weird. I said, I was smiling. I said, I tell you what I'll do. I'll put out the pipe if you put out that cigarette. And he said, oh, I can't do that, man. You know, I've got I to have my smoke. And I said, so do I. And I said, and I said you know, if this, my smoke bothers you, why wouldn't your smoke bother me? And it didn't anyway. I was just trying to make a point to him. He just thought I was from Mars. He didn't want to listen to me. He said, well, I'm not putting out my cigarette. And I said, in that case, I'm not putting out my pipe. You'll just have to learn to live with it. And he turned around and he walked away, frustrated. But, you know, that 
that's the only incident I ever had, and I never understood how a cigarette smoker could not like the smell of a pipe. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, it was uh, beneficial for you to smoke while you were while you're working. Always, I, I, you know, I guess it's like Mark Twain said. You know, he couldn't think unless he had a unless he had a smoke. And I have a feeling it's the same is true of me. Every job I ever had, I was allowed to smoke on the job. And uh, I've been working, you know, as a professional cartoonist and a writer, you know, for the last 23 years. And, uh, you know, I've worked at home, so I get to smoke, you know, as I please. And I've just always had that opportunity. That's why I smoke so much. But every job I had, nobody nobody ever really said very much to me. It was more accepted, as you know, in those uh, days before we got more politically correct. Let's take a break right here. When we come back, we'll talk more about uh, pipe smoking, and we'll dig in more into the uh, cartoon world. So we'll be back in just a minute. Meet Aaron, one of the most important people at SmokingPipes.com. In our shipping department, he's one of the cogs in the highly efficient wheel, if you will, that's responsible for making sure your order goes out right every time. Ain't that right, Aaron? I don't know all about that cog in the wheel stuff, but I do know at SmokingPipes.com, I take my work very seriously. Pulling tents of tobacco, weighing bulk tobacco, triple checking orders, and getting them out the door. Since it's so easy to order from SmokingPipes.com, you're keeping Aaron pretty darn busy. Look at him go, go, go. <laughs> in fact, it's been a challenge to get him to stop long enough to say hello. But Aaron doesn't mind. He loves his job at SmokingPipes.com. Why is that, Aaron? Because I don't just ship pipes. I smoke them. Gotta run. <laughs> just log on to SmokingPipes.com or call us at 1-888-366-0345. We are quality. We are experts. We are SmokingPipes.com. I'm not just a pipe smoker. I'm a Meerschaum pipe smoker. All of my pipes come from MeerschaumStore.com. They've been in business for 50 years, and I can trust that there will be no hassles. Orders are processed and shipped fast, and they have every shape you can imagine, including calabash, claws, dragons, horror, even a sexy series. MeerschaumStore.com, the most trusted Meerschaum store for 50 years. We are back on the Pipes Magazine radio show, Visiting with Jim. Jim, you said a couple of things that interested me. One is, how does one break into cartooning at the same time having a, uh, or playing organized baseball? Well, it was semi-pro. It wasn't really quite organized, but uh, but I didn't do that until later. I actually, I actually didn't play start playing until I was 30, and I played until I was 40. Uh, but in, in so during my college years, I didn't play ball, and um, but I got into cartooning while I was playing ball. I, w- I used to run a comic book shop, and I did that for nine years. I also put on nine comic book conventions, and we had a lot of of the uh, great and famous people like Jack Kirby, who was the major creator of the Marvel universe, as, uh, uh, you know, from the '60s and the '70s. Uh, we had um, Harvey Kurtzman, who was the creator of Mad Magazine. We had Alex Toth, who was one of the greatest draftsmen that comics ever had, and he did a lot of animation, including Space Ghost, Herculoids, Scooby-Doo—you name it. Alex was 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 peerless in his draftsmanship. Um, Will Eisner, who created the spirit and some of the visual language of our of, of the, our medium, just like Jack Kirby created much of the of the superhero pyrotechnics of of, of, you know, of the visual language. There was nobody like Kirby, fountain fountain of creativity, and we had other people like that. So, uh, but I and I was doing fine art, but I wasn't making any money out as much as I enjoyed it, and I was in the comics so much I decided you know it's time that I take the idea of being a cartoonist seriously so you know I started doing portfolios and getting rejected and getting rejected you know if you want to be a writer if you want to be a musician or an artist or a performer of any kind actor you have to learn to be thick-skinned and get used to being turned down and I was turned down quite a bit uh, I was turned down more by comic book companies than by girls, <laughs> but uh, thank God. Uh, and and uh, I would go to other artists. Okay, what can I do to improve? What am, what am I what am I not seeing in my work that I need to fix? And I would listen to advice. 
Um, and that's the one key. You, you, you have to, your natural talent only really takes you so far. You have to understand the technical aspects of draftsmanship. And if you can't, and if you aren't going to do that, if you're not going to understand how muscles work with each other on the arm, you can't draw an arm realistically. Or then you can't cartoon it either. You know, you can't exaggerate it unless you know what the figure really looks like. You have to understand, you know, perspective, how things work together, in, in, you know, in space. And it's it's not something that you can you can just figure out on your own. You know, everybody has to have a little help. You have to have good intuition, and you have to be able to analyze what you are seeing and translate it to the page. And then if you can do that, then you can exaggerate and draw anything you want. But it takes time. It doesn't come overnight. So how does it work on a, on a comic book? Does the story come first, and then the yes. artist is, is, is yes. told to fill in the space? And a, a, a writer is hired by an editor, and a, and a story is discussed. A writer writes the story, and then whatever editorial changes need to be made are made. Then the script is sent to a person who pencils it. And once it's penciled, the, the pages are sent. Um, well, it used to be they were sent to a letterer, and, pens, and the pages, the lettering was done on the page. Now most of it's done on the computer. So what happens is once a page is penciled, it's sent to someone to ink it. And um, an inker... You, puts his own style on it sometimes. I don't always do that because I feel like an inker's job is to finish the statement of the penciler. So I don't change something unless it needs to be changed. If somebody has drawn something wrong in perspective, I fix it. There are times I worked with a penciler once who for some reason didn't understand that men's shirts are buttoned on the opposite side of women's shirts and he kept giving men's shirt, women's shirts and I kept having <laughs> to fix them. Sometimes he'd draw two right hands instead of a right hand and a left hand. It's right. How he, he didn't know what side of the hand the thumb was on. And there were things you'd have to fix. And so an inker is not a tracer like they say in that one movie. Uh, there might be a few who are, but an inker has to know how to draw. Because sometimes the penciler needs to be picked up. It depends on who, how good the penciler is. But if, and comic books are colored on the computer. They're not colored on the original art, by the way. So... Um, once, once the inker has done his job, the, the pages are scanned into the computer and the colorist colors them, then, you know, the editor is checking things every step of the way, and then eventually, it's, you know, once everything's accepted, it's printed and, and published. Is that the same process for, like, the, the, the daily comic strips that are in the newspaper? The, to, it's, it's a little different. Um, if you're Charles Schultz, who was an, one of the most amazing of all the cartoonists, because for the 50 years he did Peanuts, Nobody wrote a gag for him. Nobody drew or lettered or colored his strip. He did everything himself, and he was probably the, the only man who ever did it for any really length of time by himself. The deadlines in newspaper strips are crushing, and they're internal. They're everlasting, and they're, and, and they're always coming at you, you know, and you have to stay on top. If you fall behind, the syndicate will find you, and it's... it's uh, it's it's crushing work at times, and if you're doing a realistic strip, there's no way you can keep up. And most of those people have assistants. So so whoever has the job, whoever creates the strip, is responsible for all the contents that they turn into the syndicate. Um, there are exceptions. You know, when you're Al Cap and you're little Abner, Al Cap, you know, had his brother or other people ghost write the strip for him when he didn't write it himself, and he had a battery of artists over the years help him draw little Abner, uh, which is stark contrast to uh, Peanuts. Bill Watterson, who did Calvin Hobbes, which was one of my favorite strips, never had an assistant of any kind. And he ended up burning out, which is why there's no more Calvin Hobbes, which is all to our, you know, lament. But for the most part, people have assistants. But the people who have the account are responsible for getting the job turned into the syndicate, essentially. So they hire whatever assistance they need. So what was your first art job? Oh, boy. You mean uh, in comic books or just in art in general? Yeah, in art in general. When did you first get a paycheck for doing something artistic? Well, I, I, I did get some things published, but I wasn't paid for them, and that was okay. I didn't mind. I just wanted to be published. You know, when you're a teenager in my early 20s, you don't care as, quite as much then. But not count, And those were in, like, small publications. Not counting those, uh, the first time was... Um, 
was a, for my first cartoons published in a magazine called Amazing Heroes, which was a fanzine about comic books. Uh, but I was doing fine art by that time, and I'd sell a piece here and there. The first piece of fine art I sold was probably 1984. Um, so that would that would predate you know painting work, uh, my cartoons by a year, and I I did not become a comic book artist until 1992, and and in the meantime I was just selling things here and there, uh, you know where I could, and I was doing I started doing more cartooning by the late 80s early 90s, and I stopped doing fine art when I became a comic book artist because. The job was so time-consuming. I had so much work to do immediately that I couldn't do the fine art anymore because it didn't really pay that well anyway. And are the, the current comic books, are they coming out once a month or once a quarter with regular deadlines? It always varies. You know, some books are quarterly, some books are bi-monthly, meaning every two months, and some books are monthly. Um, there's no set pattern. It depends on how a book sells. Uh, you know, the, more, the better a book sells, the more... Uh, frequency of publication so there's not just one answer to that question Um, but uh, the deadlines like I say the press time is already solicited by the publisher so you when they tell you June 24th they don't mean June 25th that work has to be in you see deadlines wait for no man and there are some people (laughs) who don't meet deadlines and often they don't stay in the business very long there are some people who are so well-known like Frank Miller or Jim Lee that the companies know they're not going to make their deadlines, and they make those arrangements however they're made. But, you know, I'm not big and famous like like, like they are. I meet my deadlines. In, in, the, in, the 20, in the 22 and a half years I've been a comic book artist, I have never been late on a deadline, and I don't know anybody else who's worked as long as me who can say that. But, but you know, you have to be on time. You just have to be on time. That's, that's the main thing. And every Thursday night, or soon to be every Tuesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, there's a show, and it has to be on time. That's right. That's so, right. So, going back to pipe smoking for a minute, you did you did you find a particular style of pipe that you that you narrowed in on, or does your pipe does your pipe preference kind of bounce around like your tobacco taste? It bounces around. I, I I liked bent pipes because I was a Sherlock Holmes fan, but then I my first pipe, which was my father's, was a straight pipe. When I started buying pipes, I bought curved pipes, and one day I went, you know, I need another straight pipe just as a change of pace. I realized very early in the first year of my smoking that I wanted variety of pipe and I wanted variety of tobacco, and I, um, you know, just decided that. Sometimes you're in the mood for, 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 for something sweet. Sometimes you're in the mood for something heavy. Or, or maybe you need Latakia. Last night I, need, I, had a, I, had a, I needed a preak really badly. I had to have my preak fix, you know. And in those days, I, you know, started uh, dedicating after the first, I would say, by 1980, I started dedicating pipes to tobaccos because I had already started building up a collection and they weren't most of them weren't very, you know, expensive pipes. I bought some basket pipes or you know, I bought second pipes and some of the second pipes, you know, were were as good as first. You know, I have a I have a Sheraton second, which is a Chippendale uh Rhodesian that I bought for for eighteen ninety five in nineteen seventy nine and it smokes as good as my higher grade Sheraton's. You know, it's just the, the grain isn't that great, but who cares? You bought it for, for the pleasure of smoking that it gives you, and, it, and it's a quality smoke. And um, so I expanded my thinking in, in tobaccos, and I expanded my thinking in pipes. I went through a little phase where I wanted to have some Danish-looking pipes, and I like Ben Wade pipes, so I have, I have a number of free hands. And then you'd go to a phase where, you know, you want another style. So I went through several different phases. And then sometimes your my phase changes during the day. I smoked a straight pipe. Well, now I want to smoke a you know a full bend or maybe an umpal. And I went through an umpal phase too, by the way. So if my taste is ever changing, and and I have enough. Of, I have about two hundred and fifty five pipes now, and so I've got a pipe and I've got a tobacco for whatever my mood happens to be, you know. And that's the way I like it. And, and I think I started that you know fairly early. Now you didn't you, the the two hundred and fifty five pipes is built up over time, correct? So over over forty years. 
So let's see. I've been smoking a pipe for yeah. I'm behind on you, so I need my wife to make sure and listen to this because it's only been about fifteen, sixteen years for me. So I need to pick up my pace a little bit. Uh, do you find well, a particular? I have a collection. Yeah. It just grew. It just grew. I'd see a pipe. If I had a little extra money, you know, I I I, I would buy it. And then I had girlfriends who sometimes would buy me a pipe. I got a lot of dates because I was a pipe smoker. Girls were interested in the guy that smoked pipes, so I got a lot of a lot of dates that way. But uh, you know, my wife bought me a couple of pipes. I've had sometimes friends would buy me a pipe for Christmas or something. Um, one of my one of my best friends, when he passed away, I had got him on pipe smoking. I ended up with his collection, and some of the high high uh, end of pipes that I own came from my my late friend Donald. So I got them in many different ways. I didn't buy them all, and sometimes I traded art for pipes. I did that on a couple of Dunhills. You know, it was a great deal for me. <laughs> <laughs> do you find when you're doing when you're sitting down working? Do you find a particular shape of pipe better for you? Bent versus straight, large, small. Well, obviously clenchers. Yeah, got to have a clencher because um, you know you, I use my left hand. I'm right-handed. I use my left hand to steady the page. Right hand to draw with, of course, or this may take a while to answer but here it is have you determined if a particular country of origin for the pipe or size of the pipe means that it's going to work better with a specific style of pipe tobacco not really okay that was a good easy answer (laughs) 
<laughs> so your your English pipes don't smoke. English tobacco's better than better than anything else. I don't think so. I really don't. I think I I I, I think if for the most part, if the briar is good, it's going to handle anything. So if the briar is good I, and the pipe's well made, it'll smoke whatever you put in it. That's right. I, that, that's exactly what I think. Yes. And for this for this episode, because we're going to have you. We're going to have you come back again. We're going to wrap it up with the fast five final questions. No right answer, no wrong answer, but a couple of these are going to trip you up. Are you ready? Uh-huh. What's your favorite pipe? My favorite pipe? I would say that's a hard question. Well, uh, for sentimental reasons, I would have to say my father's pipe or my very first pipe. For practicality, I would say it's a Dunhill I have from the late 30s that somebody had owned and died. I ended up with it. It's a it's a straight bulldog, and it's got and this it must have meant a lot to this man because the shank was broken, he had a silver band repair. The pipe is kind of beat up looking. It's not very pretty, but it's not only very functional, but it's got so much character that I wouldn't polish, I wouldn't polish up that pipe or or put a new band on it for anything in the world because of the character that goes along with the smokeability. But. Uh, that's for practical reasons. For sentimental reasons, it's hard to pick between my father's pipe and my very first one. And what's your favorite tobacco? My, of all time or currently? Whatever you answer. Of all time, it's the Vapor Three Nuns, hands down. Currently, what's currently being made, I would probably, it's, that's a tough one, but I would probably say Full Virginia Flake. I, I can, that's a go-to smoke for me, and I love it. And this should be an easier question for you. What's your favorite drink? My favorite drink? Oh, ice water. Chilled to the proper temperature, of course. <laughs> uh, 42 and a half degrees. Yes, with floating little icebergs. <laughs> <laughs> and now, when it's time to relax, is it a book, a movie, or music? A book. Any particular book. genre? Yes, American history. I, I, I love American history. I was a history minor in college. I, I could have been a history professor and been very happy. I, I just have a fascination for the past. Um, not, you know, for world history, too, but particularly American history because I'm an American. Uh, I have my greatest interest is in World War II and the American Revolution. And finally, any particularly favorite pipe-smoking memory? Oh, there's so many. I, 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 I got engaged. The first time I got engaged, I thank God I didn't marry the woman. I remember the pipe I was smoking. And <laughs> she had talked to me. I, I didn't let her know I smoked the pipe. I was, kind of, I was afraid she would think I was some idiot or something because I was uh, 17 years old. And she talked to me and said, I want to see you smoke it. So maybe this is my favorite memory. Uh, and so I okay, okay, okay. I pulled it out and I'm smoking the pipe. And she just... She's just like so fascinated by this. And I finally turned around and I said to her, I said, would you like to get married? And she said, yes. And she made me take the pipe out of my mouth to kiss her, damn it. (laughs) 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 But yeah, that's one of them. There's there's a lot of memories. A lot of my pipes are special to me because certain things I did while I was smoking a certain pipe. And there are certain pipes that I have that always bring back a certain memory. Or in the case of my friend Donald, you know, who's gone now, whenever I smoke one of his pipes, I think about him and I miss him. Yeah. He was a great person. Jim, that was wonderful. For those of you listening, wait a couple of weeks and you'll hear what uh, we talked about as far as tobacco reviews and one particular tobacco in one particular tobacco in particular. That's very particular. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> Works for me. We'll be back in just a minute. There's nothing quite like hunting at dawn or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. Signore, signore, scusi per favore, but what is that intoxicating and delicious aroma coming from your pipe? Oh, uh, this is Molto Dolce, my all-time favorite blend from Sutliff Tobacco. Do you like it? I found it on SutliffMoltoDolce.com. Do you mind if I try? 
Oh, signore, this truly is molto dolce. So charming that you even speak my language as it is truly very sweet. <laughs> just like you, I am sure. I can just taste the warm caramel and sweet dripping honey gushing through my mouth. Oh, and even better, the rich vanilla flavor plays so well with the other tastes over my tongue. It is like they are all having a giant playful pillow fight on smooth and silky sheets of tobacco in my mouth. Pure heaven! Mi piace moltissimo, mi amore. Can't you see it, signore? I can see it. I can see it. And signore, best of all, no tongue bite. Grazie un milione for the pipe, signore. Hey! Satleff Tobacco Company will not be held responsible for any loss of one's favorite pipe customers may experience when smoking our delicious Malta Dolce blend in public. This is Internet Radio. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Uh, one of the other things that Jim and I are both into is uh, old-time radio. Yeah, the old radio shows. And uh, Jim pointed me towards this one called The Lonely Gal. And I believe it was from 1939, 1940, 41. And the best I can describe it, and I, you know, I hope I don't offend anybody, but I think this was the, the, the original uh, porn of some sort. But it's basically this woman with a husky voice that talks to the men and then sings a song or plays some music and she talks about being lonely but anyway i pulled out this segment of it because she's sponsored by bond street tobacco so just sit back and listen to exactly how bad and how wonderful this is Every girl likes to be with a man of good taste. And, sweetie, I'm no exception. That's why I like being with you. I like the ties you pick. I like the clothes you wear and the music you choose. And most of all, I like the Bond Street tobacco you smoke. Good taste is just another name for Bond Street. Sweetie, I don't have to tell you about Bond Street tobacco. You smoke it, you taste it, you enjoy the full, rich, mellow pleasure that comes out of that wonderful Bond Street blend. But what I do want to tell you is what it means to me, what it means to the girl you're with when you're smoking Bond Street. It means the joy of seeing you happy. It means the pleasure of enjoying with you the gentle, delicate aroma that only Bond Street has. It means the good taste of a kiss between boy and girl. Maybe this isn't news to you, but it's good to know these things about Bond Street tobacco, the mild, clean, good-tasting tobacco that pleases not only you, baby, but the girl you're with. It's a man's tobacco that keeps a girl feeling good about the man who smokes it. You'll remember that, won't you, baby? I know you will. You've got good taste. You're my everything. some gal and the Malta Dolce lady. It's getting a little warm in here, but <laughs> that was 1939-1940 uh, entertainment. So, All right, straight into the mailbag. Straight into the mailbag. Here we go. Uh, Jay writes, I uh, just wanted to say thanks for putting on, the, for putting the Pipes Magazine radio show together. You guys do a great job. I consider myself a rather younger smoker, mid-30s, now smoking pipes only since about 18 on and off. 
And I've learned so much and have been inspired to go to a show, try new blends, and even smoke a little bit more. I've enjoyed the many interviews, especially Russ Wallette. I just started smoking his blends this year. He is really good at his craft. I'd love to hear from Jim Inks. He's on many forums. Well, there you just heard from Jim Inks. Jay in Providence, Rhode Island. You'll hear from more from Jim Inks in a little bit. Uh, let's go back in response to episode 91. John Seiler writes, Brian, can't disagree with you on your discussion of tobacco processing. I always enjoyed Mike Butera tobaccos, especially the dark stove. I haven't tried one of his pipes yet. His stories of Baldy and Scotty were great. Yule Brenner, always a great actor and pipe smoker and um, not exactly the best singer, but anyway. Um, Balsifer from Canada writes, Hi Brian, another great interview. Just finished listening to your podcast with Mike Butera and his road to pipe making. Looking forward to his return and talk about his tobacco brands. That will be next week on Tuesday when we switch over to Tuesdays. Uh, Safari Pirate, Brian, as usual, great interview with Mike Butera. Very interesting pipe parts about tobacco and is always just a wonderful show. On Andre Segovia, I was blessed to be able to hear him in person. Just wonderful. I think he could have made a broom sound good. <laughs> yeah, to think of all those guitar lessons I've taken, I should have just bought more Segovia CDs. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. That was needed that laugh. Uh, Birds Eye wrote, Great show with Mike Butera. I enjoyed last week's show, but it is much better to watch Gina perform online than listen to her for a number of reasons. She's a very unique individual. I was glad I had the fast-forward option for this week's music. Sorry, didn't like Yule Brenner. I was planning a comment on the extra-absorbent extra cleaners last week, but never got around to it, so I'm glad it came up again this week. I've always used Long's pipe cleaners, both regular and extra-absorbent. I used to be pretty regimented with my pipe cleaning, doing it, every, doing it every two weeks, but those days seem to be long gone. I now clean my pipe right before I smoke. My habit is to use two or three regular cleaners in the stem and fluffy ones on the shank. First, I'd run both ends and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, uh, back and forth. Lately, though, I'm almost exclusively using fluffy cleaners in both the stem and the shank. If I can get a fluffy cleaner into the stem, I feel the added pressure from the tight fit seems to clean it better. Uh, thanks for the great work. Uh, uh, Nelson wants everybody to go check out Gina's shoot on the uh, Pipe Babes. All right, going forward to episode 92. Uh, Dino writes, Hi, Brian. Your conversations with Fred Hanna are always illuminating and downright fun. I've been quite entertained by this debate over the past few years, reading and hearing the experts of their own opinions, which I are one, uh, piss and spit about an issue that the huge majority of our small minority of pipe smokers will ever be able to establish their own empirical insights. I'm afraid that you were... Uh, I'm afraid... That were you to hand a guy who loves smoking his Molta Dolce in a Missouri Meerschaum a Bo Nord filled with Molta Dolce, he might say, a la Peggy Lee, is that all there is? I tend to agree with Russ Wallette. Smoke what you like, like what you smoke. Uh, happy trails, Dino. Uh, Darwin writes, double plus on the nasal snuff. They touched on what I like to call the dab and swipe method, which consists of lightly wetting the tip of a finger very, very lightly dabbing it on uh, snuff and then gently swiping it into the inner septum of one's nose. This sounds a wee bit messy, but it almost entirely obviates the problem so many who try snuff have with taking it in too deep into their noses and uh, the unpleasant effects. Also not noted is that there are three old-line English makers who also make Pipe Tobacco, Samuel Gowith, Gowith Hogarth, and Freiborg and Trayer, to be specific. F&T's High Dry Toast is a snuffy haven in a can. Uh, what else do we have? Riff Raff writes, A great interview with Fred. Great stuff about Briar versus Brand. I tend to lean towards the Briar aspect as well. It just seems so logical 
It was interesting to know that Fred is a snuff taker. I too use snuff and find it very enjoyable. One must exercise caution when using it. The overzealous snuffer may get more than he, she bargained for. One point that Fred didn't mention about snuff is that if you pinch it with your fingers, let the snuff warm up in your fingers for a minute or two. That allows the oils and flavorings to bloom so you get more scent flavor. Great show yet again. Uh, Mr. Moto Yoshi wrote, again, great show. I'm sure I speak for everyone when I say I could listen to Fred for two hours. His students have to do that. Um, anyway, always an interesting interview. I agree with Fred in that the briar is probably the most important factor outside of drilling, and it is usually overlooked by most, and the stamping sways their decision more. Also, the Ernie Markle show was great, although I have a bone to pick with you about proper Castilian Spanish. I have a master's in Spanish linguistics and literature, and one thing all my my professors have stressed is, I can't even speak English, so, um, is that all dialects are linguistically valuable. There are even studies showing that the reason Latin Americans speak the way they do is from the influence of the Andalusian explorers. They don't use the Northern Castilian, and uh, but it's bordering on snobbery, and that shan't be tolerated in the pipe community. Although it's there. Uh, he asks, I wanted to ask if there are any shows dealing with DGT, Delayed Gratification Technique. I'm a little interested in seeing what the pros think about this. If it has been covered, would you be ever so kind as to tell me what episode? Thanks a bunch and keep up the good work, Brian. Andrew from Japan. Um, Andrew, let me know what you mean by delayed gratification technique. Are you talking about charring the bowl and then letting it sit overnight? Because I kind of talked about that, but let me know exactly what you're talking about. Also, to follow up on the oil curing comment that Fred relayed of Bill Taylor's that it's the first 30 bowls, I talked to both Lee Von Eric and Joe Nelson last weekend in Kansas City. Both of them said, yeah, first 10, 15 bowls, the oil curing is just to help with the break-in. So there you go. Lots of comments. If you've got any, post them on the forums, post them on the Pipes Magazine radio show. I look forward to them all. And in just a minute, rave time. Joe's, a name you know, a name that you trust for all your tobacco needs. Exclusive pipes, pipe tobacco, accessories, pipe stands, and so much more. Cup of Joe's is the one place you can go and take care of every single one of your tobacco purchases. Fast shipping, friendly, professional service. One site, cupofjoes.com. And coming soon, their new line of smoking man pipes, cupofjoes.com. Quality products and extraordinary prices. Italians have always been known for their aesthetic passion. It's their birthright, their legacy. And just like Savinelli, it continues to grow and evolve. It is ever-changing. Milan, 1876. Achilles Savinelli set out to change the way the world viewed smoking pipes, opening one of the world's first specialist tobacco shops. From one small storefront to a factory that delivered handmade pipes all over the world, the legacy he forged became one filled with success and prestige. Achilles' dream is carried on today by his family, who continues the Savinelli legacy. Each year, Savinelli debuts a series of new, forward-thinking designs, comprised of quality-crafted pipes shaped from some of the best briar in the world. Behind every beautiful object, there's a story. Start your own chapter. Visit your local tobacconist or premium online dealer today. share with you this if you are going to kansas city and uh, no you don't have to wear a flower in your hair but if you're going to kansas city and you need a hotel even if you don't gamble stay at the argosy hotel casino and spa why the rooms are nice but the bathrooms are incredible. The shower is so big, there was a discussion of how many large people you could fit in there. I figured on eight or nine people, but the shower was absolutely wonderful. 
the coffee in the room. Local Kansas City coffee place called the Roastery. The coffee, the in-room coffee was really good. But the best part for me, and the best part for me, and this is why I want to spend some time and tell you to, if you're in Kansas City, if you're going to Kansas City, stay at the Argosy. It's in a good location, right outside of downtown, right across the river. But the people there, everybody that I ran into that worked there was pleasant. Everybody said hello, asked how you were doing. Everybody seemed to want to go out of their way for you. Everybody gave you their advice, their opinion, asked how your day was going. Everybody that worked for the Argosy Casino that I came into contact was really nice. And in this day and age, and I travel a lot, when you run into a place where everybody is really nice, that is a comment to the culture of that management, and those people are doing it right. There was not one person that I saw at the Argosy who was sad, grumpy, surly, just kind of going through the motions. No, even the people that were cleaning the carpets in the middle of the day, when I was walking through, they'd stop, they'd look up, they'd ask how you're doing. I didn't make it into the casino at all, but I'm sure that the people that work there in the casino are that way. I'm sure they're all pleasant. The guy that brought the box up to my room didn't want to knock on the door and disturb me because I had the do not disturb thing out. So he went downstairs, called, and left a message. That's the kind of place that I like to stay at. So if you're in Kansas City, stay at the Argosy Casino. All right, that wraps up this show. Remember, this is the last Thursday night. Next week, we're going to Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Tomorrow, I leave for vacation. So next week's show, all pre-recorded, but it'll be the second part of Mike Butera's interview and the follow-up to the rest of Jim's coming up in a couple of weeks. So thank you all for tuning in. Thank you to the Sutliff Tobacco Company. And from the seven seas, until next time. the clouds when we're together just sing a song and think about sunny Rick, are you just looking at things in the office and saying that you love them? I love lamp. Do you really love the lamp, or are you just saying it because you saw it? I love lamp. I love lamp. <laughs>